Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. The worldwide headline shocker, an American student sentenced to 26 years for killing her roommate in Italy. You have sex, lies, drugs. Who is Amanda Knox? Is she the innocent, fun-loving American student she claims? Or a debauched and ruthless young woman? Amanda Knox, the object of a worldwide mystery and tabloid sensation. That's the theory. Knox is into some freaky sexual things. She tried to pull in Meredith and it went wrong. Is she telling the truth about what happened or not? Well, how you answer that question has a lot to do with where you're getting your facts. I thought my only way out was to kill myself. I didn't know what else to do. I went into complete shock. I disassociated. They see it as entertainment. They don't see us as real people. The online sleuths, you know, I've got a very complicated history with that group. My stories have gotten people freed from prison. It's helped catch killers. There is no standards and protocols for how to handle any of that. And so you end up just chewing on the same nonsense until you're deep in a twisted funhouse of mirrors. Somebody asked, is it disrespectful if I wear something that has blood spatter on? It sells newspapers, it sells magazines, it gets viewership. And that's what it's all about. It's money, money, money. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Blood Money, a Labyrinth miniseries. I never wanted to be at the center of a sensational true crime story. Nobody does. But once I was thrust into the public eye, there was no going back. One day, you're just living your life as an anonymous citizen. The next, your every action is under a microscope. No part of your life is safe from scrutiny and judgment. While victims of crime and victims of the justice system try to make meaning out of their suffering, the storytellers descend like vultures, transforming trauma into content. Not all storytellers are the same. Some are activists raising awareness about flaws in the justice system. Some seek consent from the people most affected by these tragedies. Some use storytelling to solve unsolved crimes and deliver justice and closure to victims. But even those with good intentions can cause harm. It's hard to avoid when making an entertainment product based around the worst moment in someone's life. True crime has become a massive industry that takes real-life violence and suffering as grist for the content mill. And the more we are glutted with true crime, the easier it is to lose sight of the human consequences of telling these stories. We're bothered by something about the true crime genre, but it's complicated. We don't want true crime to disappear. We want it to be better. We want it to be ethical. But what exactly does ethical true crime even look like? Welcome to Blood Money, the history and ethics of true crime. We're coming at this subject as outsiders in a way, because neither of us are what you'd call true crime fans. That may surprise you, given that we've covered plenty of true crime stories on labyrinths and did five seasons of a podcast called The Truth About True Crime. We've told stories in this genre because they come to us. 
For better or worse, people reach out to me, hoping I'll understand what they're going through. But we're not binging true crime podcasts in our spare time. And honestly, we don't really get the appeal. So we started with a simple question. Why is everybody so obsessed with true crime? And because we like to be thorough, we thought we'd start at the beginning, like 500 years ago. Early modern Europe is really my field. Historians call it early modern. It's really from the Renaissance up through the 18th century. That's Professor Joy Wiltenberg, a historian at Rowan University and author of True Crime, The Origins of Modern Sensationalism. I live in Philadelphia, and I was constantly hearing people worry about crime and say, oh, yes, that, you know, the big cities, we better get tough on crime and we better vote for people who are going to pass three strikes laws. And I saw it having a lot of political impact and social impact in my own life. Mass incarceration developed during my lifetime. It did not exist when I was young. I felt as though a lot of the impact of crime was coming from people watching TV news, or maybe they were looking at true crime and stuff. And so they had a really kind of distorted image of the profile of crime, because sensationalism is always telling you more about the really rare stuff that hardly ever happens. So I thought crime and depictions of crime have a huge impact on me and on us, what was going on in the past. For one, a lot of violence. The further back you go, the more violent it gets. The Middle Ages were actually far more violent than the 16th century, but with the invention of the printing press and the rise of more official law enforcement, the visibility of crime went way up. The murders that were happening were finally being prosecuted, defendants were being tried, and public executions were taking place. All this was perfect fodder for the right sort of printer. Most of the very prestigious printers would not have dirtied their hands with this kind of stuff. It's really the kind of bottom-feeding printers <laughs> who are doing this. <laughs> but the people who were writing the crime accounts were very much respectable folks, especially a lot of clergy, because they wanted to put out these moral lessons about what you should take away from terrible crime. You should repent. You should turn to God and pray more. The two most common forms of true crime entertainment in early modern Europe were the printed pamphlet and the broadside, a kind of poster. In Germany, the spectacular crimes that they wanted to write about were especially uh, crimes where somebody killed more than one person, and, and especially if they killed blood relatives and where they killed multiple people within a family. The broadsides were often illustrated and they were often very graphic about the bodies and the wounds and the weapons. They sometimes would even use coloration, which they must have done by stenciling to try to add some blood. <laughs> there were vivid scenes of the crimes. Sometimes they had panels, you know, and they would follow the murderer through the panel with the different victims and the different scenes. They would also have depictions of the execution scene and there were often specific punishments that were supposed to reflect the gruesomeness of the crime itself. So if someone had done something that was thought to be especially horrific, 
it wasn't thought to be enough to just kill them. You had to dramatize how terrible the crime was. They would take hot pinchers and tear at their oh. at their skin, or they would break their bones with a giant wheel. This was in Germany. In England, the illustrations were much less graphic. And instead of focusing on murders of family or children, the English stories were more often about romantic or marital murder. In England, the genre that came to prominence was the kind of first-person song of the condemned criminal who would sing in the criminal's voice, even though obviously they were not <laughs> uh, singing it. Sometimes those would claim that the criminal had actually written it, but often they were signed by their author, and so there was not even a pretense that said these are the actual words that they'd be saying. It just puts words in their mouths. One that certainly was famous in its time is called The Sorrowful Complaint of Mistress Page, and she's executed for conspiring to kill her husband. And it's full of all her words of remorse, but also kind of reimagining her experience and claiming to know why she did it. They would attribute remorse to the criminal, even if they denied the crime. I've seen that happen. Or even if they were already dead, there was this woman who killed herself and her children by jumping into a well. And then a first-person ballad was written saying, here I am, my name is Jane Lawson, I, uh, I did this terrible thing. And they were often set in rhyme or even set to music so that you would sing about the terrible murder. And it, clearly that helped people remember <laughs> what was in the account. And these were performed in streets and markets or taverns, you know, places where people could gather and hear the latest gruesome news. One of the most famous ballads from this era is called The Murderer Justly Condemned, or The Newgate Penitent, from 1697, which tells the tale of George Feast, a butcher of Shoreditch, being found guilty for the barbarous, bloody murder of his wife. Like many such ballads, it was set to a popular tune known as Packington's Pound. Come listen a while and a story you'll hear That will strike you with dread and amazement and fear Tis of a vile butcher which with bloody knife Without all compassion did murder his wife In Leadenhall Market who came to reclaim Him from his debaucheries and life of ill fame Then they rashly proceed, lest trouble and anguish for them be decreed. One of the ethical concerns often raised about contemporary true crime is that it focuses on perpetrators at the expense of their victims. This question of where to place the focus of true crime accounts was evident even back then. In Germany, they really liked to focus on the victims and personify them and get people to empathize with them, which is one reason they invented their words and sometimes their thoughts. In England, and especially in the ballads, it was far more common to look at the criminal. When they were looking at the criminal, there's these first-person ballads and very much recreating the crime itself and having the person who did it supposedly talking to you about why they did their crime, how terrible they feel now about having done it, how their conscience is just constantly nagging at them and making them feel miserable and how 
how afraid they are of death and execution. Unlike modern true crime, these pamphlets, broadsides, and ballads almost always had a moralizing message. And they were often didactic, even when sensational. I have found some cases where these clearly were being used to teach children because they were gathered into a little booklet with some practice handwriting in it and some messages about how if you don't listen to your teacher, you'll wind up in the hangman's hands. Very much with the idea that you've got to guard your yourselves, your soul and your children's souls against turning to evil. Very different, I think, from modern concerns about crime in which the lesson is, oh, you better lock your doors or call the police or, or something. Instead, you know, the devil is out there. But also there was another piece to it, which was, This tells you something about God's plan. God is allowing this to happen as a warning to us to really get serious about our religion. Because that's an answer to the question, how can these terrible things happen if God is in in control for good, right? And then there was also kind of a civic justification that said, you should hear about this because it will make you respect the authorities more. It will make you more obedient to the government. But while these early true crime writings were moralizing, they were also often gruesome and lurid. As much as that sensational element seems at odds with the religious motive, it actually wasn't. At this period, they were doing some pretty gruesome punishment of people they thought had done terrible crimes, but that was considered justified by the need to educate the public. And sometimes the local population was required to attend the execution to witness what will happen, partly deterrent, but also as sort of a legitimation. We want everyone to be here and kind of be part of the collective restoration of order that's going on. Yeah, so they always claimed that there was a higher purpose in publishing the crimes. Though, of course, they're a commercial product. You know, they also had this idea that you want to stir up people's emotions and get them horrified and get them really gripped so that they wouldn't just shrug it off and say, ah, yeah, well, that happened someplace else, nothing to do with me. The clergy who got into writing these especially would say, oh, you really have to take this to heart because it really happened and there really is an important message for you to take in. It matters that it's true, right? This is not just a story. Absolutely, Yeah. yeah. But how true was this early true crime? They usually at least were about a real crime. And they usually had some element of what would have been read out at the execution. Typically, the confession of the criminal was supposed to be read out for the public to know the terrible crimes they had done. So there was usually at least some relationship to that. But there was a lot of what we would think of as invention in recreating dialogue in the course of the crime when they couldn't possibly have known what people actually said, or sometimes they would report what people thought. (laughs) And I think that they thought, well, this is a valid way of telling this story because we want people to be able to relate to it and imagine it and take it to heart. And so they would do things like, especially if children had been killed, they'd invent the pleading words of the children saying, oh, please, mommy, don't kill me, you know. Wow. 
Yeah. And that happened over and over again. Whenever there is murders of children, you have them, you know, coming and offering their dolls or their, you know, some kind of heart rending, childish, naive plea for their lives. Very much a, an attempt to get people to relate to it. They really were in, trying to intensify the experience of imagining the crime and imagining the punishment. So it is sensational, even though it's not purely commercial. Interestingly, though, that commercial aim of gain for a lot of people seemed very compatible with this moralizing. I'm thinking of a couple of people who got the privilege of being able to profit off of criminal biography, particularly, for instance, the chaplain of the Old Bailey, who was called the Ordinary of the Old Bailey Criminal Court in London, of Newgate Prison. He had the right to publish these criminal biographies, and he made a ton of money doing that because there was a big demand for that. And he said, I'm a clergyman, I'm going to tell you the moral lesson that you need to draw from this, but clearly also with a profit attached. The motive and the form of true crime shifts in the 18th century, largely in response to the Enlightenment and changing attitudes about justice and human nature. People start to say, oh, wait, maybe we shouldn't be doing these public executions. It's gruesome. The modern idea that you really want to delve into the individual psychology of the criminal, uh, a number of historians have pointed to how that's post-enlightenment, because before the idea was we're all sinners and the devil is out there to get us prowling around. You give him an opening by doing some seemingly minor thing like skipping church or drinking too much or whatever, or gambling, and you know, he'll suck you in and take you down the road to crime. The 18th century is a big transition point because there really is this explosion of criminal biography and people wanting to know every detail about the lives of famous highwaymen and then famous killers. And as you begin to get broader literacy and more of a mass market, I think some people even start to admit that, okay, we're doing this for commercial purposes and we're doing this because people want to read it and there's a demand out there for knowing all this stuff. Maybe they still slip in a little bit of moralizing, but I think it becomes gradually less sincere. I mean, this is also the era with the rise of ratiocination and analytic detective fiction and oh, things yeah, like yeah, this, yeah. right? Maybe, I guess that kind of comes along with the rise of more modern police forces as well. Are there parallels between the way people are writing and talking about crime and the way society is attempting to address the problem of crime through organized and official means? Yeah, you're certainly right. The pursuit of crime comes to be glamorized. It's kind of the flip side of glamorizing the criminal that you then have these crime-fighting hero people, starting with the detectives. But by the time you get into the 19th century, you get these criminal biographies that are, are very focused on, oh, this is a very distinctive individual and let's look at their path and how they turned into this monster who would do such a terrible thing. Alongside this fixation on the criminal, the profiteering and sensationalism of true crime exploded. The newspapers condemned their audience's thirst for blood while also feeding it. They blurred the line between fact and fiction. And in the words of historian Judith Flanders, author of The Invention of Murder, nothing was too minor to be repeated, 
And many newspapers, rather than sending their own journalists, simply copied other papers' reports, creating an echo chamber of innuendo and rumor. Judging by how the news media handled my case in 2007, little has changed in this regard since Victorian times. But however much the news sacrificed truth for entertainment, the entertainment industry began taking up true crime without any of the moral pretense found in the early ballads and broadsides. The crime and violence of the day inspired melodramas depicting brutal murders and gave audiences black and white narratives with stock villains. There were even marionette shows based around murder plots. For the true crime fan of the 19th century, one might read about a sensational crime in the newspaper, later watch a play based on the events, sing a song about the killer at a pub, and spend a weekend afternoon reading a penny dreadful booklet inspired by the murder. This atmosphere and attitude towards stories about crime had real consequences for those accused. The story of John Thurtell, accused of murdering William Weir over a gambling debt, became a sensation, filling the coffers of newspapers which published venomous and speculative rumors about Thurtell long before he had his day in court. Just two weeks before Thurtell's trial, two different plays debuted in London based on the murder. Again, how little has changed. While I was stuck in prison appealing my verdict, Lifetime aired a movie depicting me as a deeply suspicious attention whore. They had no compunctions about how their entertainment product might affect my life. John Thurtell's belongings were even auctioned off to murder tourists. As Judith Flanders says, nearly everything about Thurtell had a commercial value. Murder tourism and murderabilia is still a thing today. You can go on a tour in Milwaukee following the footsteps of Jeffrey Dahmer as he hunted, dismembered, and ate his victims. Artifacts from killers fetch hefty prices at auction sites, like a painting by John Wayne Gacy or a lock of hair from Charles Manson. But murder fandom in the 19th century went even further. Police procedures often meant leaving the victim's body in place for some time, and people would flock to the site to see the latest corpse. They could witness the public execution and perhaps buy a chunk of the executioner's rope, sold by the inch. But it didn't even stop at death, for the bodies of the condemned were often given to surgeons to anatomize. One particularly inventive surgeon had a volume of the criminal's memoirs bound in the dead man's own tanned skin. The sensationalism was out of control, but it wasn't without its critics. In 1827, Thomas de Quincey wrote a still quite hilarious satire of the true crime fandom of his day. The essay, called On Murder Considered as One of the Fine Arts, presents a fictional lecture given at a social club of murder aficionados, the 19th century equivalent of a keynote speech at a true crime convention. They profess to be curious in homicide, amateurs and dilettanti in the various modes of bloodshed, and in short, murder fanciers. Every fresh atrocity of that class they meet and criticize as they would a picture, statue, or other work of art. De Quincey's satire is sharp because the argument he's lampooning is actually put forward by true crime fans. There's the moral concerns, of course, but beyond that, some crimes and some killers are simply fascinating. Is it so wrong to be fascinated? Suppose the poor murdered man to be out of his pain and the rascal that did it off like a shot, nobody knows whither. Why then, I say, what's the use of any more virtue? A sad thing it was, no doubt, very sad. 
but we can't mend it. Therefore, let us make the best of a bad matter. We dry up our tears. We have the satisfaction, perhaps, to discover that a transaction which, morally considered, was shocking, was without a leg to stand upon, when tried by principles of taste, turns out to be a very meritorious performance. It's telling that almost two centuries later, De Quincey's point still rings true. We're still grappling with the consequences of consuming crime as entertainment. One needs to pay attention to what the impact of all of this preoccupation with crime is and what the impact of the way you portray it and talk about it is. We don't question enough, I think, about whether we're talking about it in a in a constructive way that's going to be helpful for our society or whether we are just allowing ourselves to absorb it unquestioningly. We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, this is Canon. I'm a big supporter of the Labyrinths Patreon page because the work that these people do is really thoughtful and it's one of my favorite podcasts and Patreon accounts in the world. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. By the end of the 19th century, the true crime fascination had grown enough to produce the first trial of the century, that of Lizzie Borden, a spinster who was accused of hacking her father and stepmother to death with an axe. Like never before, the national consciousness was fixated on one particular true crime. But while accused killers drew morbid curiosity and the thrill of judgment, the nascent police were a target of ridicule. In the earliest detective stories, Edgar Allan Poe's Murders of the Rue Morgue and later Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, the actual police are mostly a joke, while it takes an eccentric genius to solve a dastardly crime. Just think of the bumbling Inspector Lestrade. That image of law enforcement was popularized in early silent films by stars like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, and most famously by the Keystone Cops, whose slapstick buffoonery cemented an image of police as laughably incompetent. With the birth of film and later TV, depictions of crime and law enforcement shifted in fascinating ways, and the line between truth and fiction got blurred. We wanted to dig into how depictions of crime have evolved on television, so we decided to connect with someone who watches TV for a living. My name is Jackson. I run the YouTube channel Skip Intro. I've been doing this ongoing series called Copaganda, where I look at TV shows, specifically police shows, and how they portray the police and kind of give us an idea of who the police are, what they should do. I think that for a lot of people, TV is is their main point of contact with the police. But cop shows are a different beast from the nightly news, right? It's really hard to separate news broadcasts about crime from these shows because I also think that they come from a lot of times the same kind of origin place. Local news broadcasts will get a lot of their facts about stories from the police departments. They work with them pretty closely so that they can report it out quickly. But that also means that they're basically parroting whatever the police want to say. We may not think of the news as true crime, but much of it still literally is. If it bleeds, it leads, as reporters say. 
The stories we tell about crime shape our perceptions of the world. They influence how we see crime, victims, criminals, and police, even when the truth part of true crime slips on the veneer of fiction. The police and Hollywood have a very interesting relationship since the very beginning of film, which is the early 1900s. In 1915, the Supreme Court basically said that movies are not protected under the First Amendment. So you can heavily censor this stuff. So they do that. The police chief of the NYPD in 1908 shut down all of the movie theaters in New York City as like a show of force. You don't get to talk bad about my cops. And then that starts to go away after censorship starts to come in. And also as productions become bigger and bigger, you need the police in some sense for permits and just logistical things to be security, to make sure nobody comes on the street while we're shooting and stuff like that. And these productions start to get way less critical of the police. And then the real breakthrough happens in the 50s when Jack Webb creates Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. He wants to put forward this idea of authenticity. That's kind of the trademark of Dragnet. And I think that's still an idea that has persisted throughout the entire cop show genre. In order to achieve this realism, Jack Webb had to create an intimate partnership with the LAPD. They provided story ideas, helped with logistics and permits, and lent credibility to the show's claim that these were real stories, real crimes, real criminals, and real cops. While not strictly nonfiction, this was the dominant form of true crime of the day. Webb's insight was that it mattered to audiences that the stories were true, at least in spirit. But as with the true crime ballads of the 17th century, or even the true crime podcasts of today, claims of truth often compete against other incentives. He would also save production costs because the LAPD would volunteer equipment. They're bringing in all these extra cop cars, all this extra equipment, these extras that are police officers who are just volunteering. They're having off-duty police officers as security for their shoots, so they don't have to pay for any of those things. The trade-off is that he lets them heavily censor his scripts. So they put forward a very rosy, a very sanitized version of who the LAPD are. They'll include Black and Hispanic officers, but they won't include the fact that the LAPD is still racially segregated. They will scrap things about a woman dying from a, an unsafe abortion, stuff like that. And Dragnet basically becomes like a PR wing for the LAPD in exchange for all of those things. While the earlier Supreme Court decision was eventually overturned in the 50s and censorship of film and TV receded, the bargain that Jack Webb struck with the LAPD set a model for all later cop shows that allowed a form of censorship to continue. Because of this economic and logistic relationship that needs to exist between big productions and the police, you end up seeing the police being able to exert a lot of control over these things still. Given that, it's no surprise how cops are portrayed. Joe Friday is very clinical, even-keeled. He always gets it right. Very stoic guy. Whenever there was a shooting, he's perfect. One shot. He was just the consummate professional. He never got anything wrong. He's got the guy at the end of every episode. He always did everything by the book. There are over 5,000 men in this city. 
who know that being a policeman is an endless, glamorous, thankless job that's got to be done. I know it too, and I'm damn glad to be one of them. But they also had these crazy overtones of, you know, crime is on the rise, which, I mean, in all fairness, by the time the late 50s, early 60s come around, violent crime is on the rise, something that we saw happen throughout the early 90s, which is important context for a lot of these cop shows. But it's very much like the city is this urban place where crime happens. I am the line between crime and civilians. I am the thin blue line, essentially. Compared to present-day perceptions of the police, it's almost shocking how warmly they were portrayed in these early cop shows. Washington Post critic Alyssa Rosenberg, writing about the depictions of police in pop culture, notes that Jack Webb's portfolio included social services, such as helping a woman who had abandoned her child or solving a robbery at a Latino church right before Christmas. As violent crime rose in the 60s, the relationship between citizens and police became more alienated. This was further compounded by the civil rights movement, where police were often in conflict with protesters. And yet, the relationship between law enforcement and Hollywood remained close throughout the 60s and 70s. J. Edgar Hoover shut down a bunch of TV shows before they ever got onto the air and then helped them make FBI, which is in the 70s, same exact thing. The FBI. Tonight's episode, The Monster. J. Edgar Hoover is an executive producer of FBI, which runs on ABC for like 10 years, which is just wild to think about. J. Edgar Hoover served as director of the FBI from 1935 to 1972. And as Alyssa Rosenberg notes, while Hoover was producing this television show meant to bolster the image of the FBI— he was also sending agents to surveil and harass Martin Luther King Jr. The divide between the reality of law enforcement and crime and their portrayal on television was widening. Part of the issue is simply a matter of perspective. When you have a show that focuses on the police, you are always going to interact with crime in the way that they interact with it. The job of the police is not to stop the circumstances that cause crime like poverty or anything like that. It's an inherent problem with the cop show genre. You're always going to be interacting with crime from an after-the-fact, retaliatory, we're trying to shake out justice here perspective. In some ways, objectivity is just not really a thing. The place that the story is being told from is always going to impact what the story is. There's no way to tell it from the view from nowhere. So I think that Whenever you include this tag of this is the real story, this is true, you're kind of lying. You're minimizing the subjectivity of your perspective, of your bias. There was this French filmmaker, Truffaut, who said that there is no such thing as an anti-war film because any movie that's about war is going to inherently be exciting mm. and to some degree endorsing violence and and war. I think there are people who tried to make these more critical cop shows, but I think that as long as you are centering your show on the police, you are always going to be fighting an uphill battle. As recently as the early 2000s, the show The Shield, their story is about the Rampart scandal in 
the LAPD, which was this huge corruption scandal. And the LAPD gets so mad at them that says that they can't mention that it's based on the LAPD. They threaten to sue them. They're trying to pull permits and stuff like that. So they have to make up this place called Farmington. The Shield is a like an anti-hero cop show. The cops are the villains of the show. They're literally just a gang. But you still are experiencing the entire story from the perspective of the police. Like, there's still not a lot of time given to criminals. They're still kind of just nameless, shapeless people of color for the most part. There's no real understanding of why they're doing crime or anything like that. Some shows have done a better job of zooming out and trying to see it from a lot of different angles. The Wire is kind of the pinnacle of this, where you spend time with people doing crime, you spend time with the cops, you spend time with some bystanders, not that many. And we kind of see how this is a system that perpetuates itself. And I think it's hard to come out of that show feeling really great about the police solving these problems, solving the drug war, solving anything, really. But The Wire is the exception that proves the rule. The legacy of based-on-a-true-story cop shows descending from Dragnet exploded in the 90s with Law and Order, which spawned dozens of similar franchises. As recently as 2018, 60% of network primetime shows were about the police or the legal system. The Dick Wolf-verse of Law and Order, Law and Order SVU, Law and Order XYZ, those shows are always upholding how the system works. Obviously, not every crime is solved in SVU. There's like 800 episodes. But for the most part, the vast majority of them are, we got it, we did it right, everything was by the book, the system works. And of course, the real world is a lot messier than that. Just take interrogations, for example. All of these shows end with the confession in the interrogation room. We got them. We got them to say the magic words, so it's over interrogation is kind of held up as the inverse of violence. So like there are the cops who will go out there and they'll beat guys up and they'll make arrests that way. Whenever we see quote unquote bad cops, it's guys who are doing something so egregious or roughing up perpetrators. But then there's the soft power. The quote unquote right way for you to do policing is to berate this person in interrogation or pull these like pseudo psychology tricks. Yeah, yeah. It's presented as this is the way that we do it right. We outsmart the criminal by catching him in his own lies until he has no other choice but to admit it. Our favorite example of this trope comes from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where a defendant is badgered into a comically precise confession. You're the luckiest son of a it wasn't bitch. luck. Yes, it was. You got lucky at every turn. No, I knew exactly where I was driving. I left my phone in the office on purpose. I was in a surgical suite by design, and I didn't use some glass award that any idiot would clearly see was missing. I made a rod out of a special dental polymer, killed him with it, then melted it back down. It's already in a patient's mouth, son. This kind of spontaneous declaration is largely a fiction but one that police and prosecutors deliver time and again to juries when describing how a confession happened, when often such confessions are coerced, jumbled, and inconsistent, and even authored directly by the police themselves. Interrogations, which are the backbone of every single one of these shows, we know that 25% of people who have been wrongfully convicted of crimes confess in an interrogation or something. In my experience, 
the layperson finds it incredibly difficult to imagine anyone confessing to something they didn't do. I don't blame them. That was me before my own experience. A big reason why may be the endless police procedurals that claim to represent the truth of our criminal legal process. Even CSI has been problematic in this way. CSI, in a lot of ways, they kind of put forward this idea that the police are superhumanly able to solve crimes based off of forensic evidence. There's always getting DNA evidence. There's always blood splatters or whatever else. This has led to the CSI effect, an issue where real-life jurors expect copious forensic evidence in a trial and discount circumstantial evidence, effectively raising the standard of proof for prosecutors. And if these ripped-from-the-headlines dramas can affect real-life trials, they certainly affect the way we consume and produce true crime content. TV is really interesting to me. It's always been really interesting to me because it's this mirror of our society, of the things that we value, the things that we don't value. Law & Order SVU is a great example of this. During its early years, it reflected the tough-on-crime attitude of the times. As Dylan Matthews of Vox notes, in those seasons, any notion that sex offenders could benefit from treatment or rehabilitation was strictly absent. But as society evolved, the show evolved, and recent seasons have shown a more nuanced view of sex offenders. But perhaps its best claim to being a force for good is its consistent emphasis on believing victims of sexual assault. As one of its showrunners told Rolling Stone, we like to think that SVU's place in pop culture contributed to the positive change we're seeing today. The public's perception of sex crimes is changing. More victims feel they can speak out. This is actually supported by research. A 2015 study by Stacey Hust found that viewers exposed to the Law & Order franchise were less likely to believe rape myths and more likely to value consent. But like with the depiction of police, the very act of telling stories about sexual violence has social consequences. Even if those stories have a victim's rights spin, the assaults themselves are often depicted in a lurid way. Close-ups on the faces of young women in the act of being traumatized. As Emily Nussbaum at The New Yorker puts it, SVU wavers between PSA and pornography. At its greasiest, SVU becomes a string of rape fantasies, justified by healing truisms. I have to say, I felt greasy watching season 22, episode 3, which featured a character named Sexy Lexi, accused of a drug-fueled threesome that ended in murder. Your DNA was on her bra clasp. Did you give her the drugs, Lexi? Be straight with us. (laughs) Did I do it? Setting aside the strangeness of having my life and trauma cannibalized for SVU content, these shows reveal an ethical dilemma at the heart of all true crime. There are potential benefits to telling stories about crime, educational, psychological, and social, but the very act of telling these stories inevitably enters lurid and exploitative territory and shapes what we expect of our true crime entertainment. And when your most frequent lenses on crime, criminals, police, and victims are these kinds of police shows, it's easy to see true crime tragedies as puzzles to be solved. After all, that's what the police protagonists are doing in every single episode. But for as big of an impact as Law & Order and its imitators have had on modern perceptions of crime, 
The conflicting visions of what true crime should be today were born in the late 80s, with the near simultaneous release of three iconic and dramatically different examples of how to tell true stories about crime and what kind of truth matters most. Today, there is a battle being waged for the soul of true crime. It's taking place on numerous battlefields, in docuseries, books, podcasts, television shows, and even festivals. But the seeds of this battle were planted in the late 80s. Nearly simultaneously, audiences were met with three different visions of what true crime could be. America's most wanted. Television's first weekly manhunt is a new weapon in the battle against crime. And it's sending America's most wanted rapists, robbers, and murderers back to jail. Host John Walsh had become an advocate for missing children after his six-year-old son, Adam, was kidnapped and murdered in 1981. Now, with America's Most Wanted, he was offering average citizens a chance to participate in the search and capture of criminals. Please call 1-800-CRIME-93. And it worked. Within four days of the first broadcast, David James Roberts, an escaped convict on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list, was captured as a direct result of the show. Every online sleuthing podcast today owes an inheritance, whether they realize it or not, to America's Most Wanted, which proved the concept of participatory true crime. A second seed was planted in 1989 with the arrival of the reality TV program Cops, which promised a gritty and voyeuristic realism far beyond anything that had come before. Cops pushed the kind of curated and biased realism of Dragnet to its extreme, offering viewers an ostensibly real-as-it-gets true-story view of crime while actually delivering pro-police propaganda. As Alyssa Rosenberg wrote in the Washington Post, the devious genius of Cops is that while the show is staged by police departments, the people the police arrest sign off on their own depictions as lying, luckless incompetents who climb drunk out of car windows, try to eat large quantities of marijuana, and even get stopped biking under the influence. The police get the opportunity to present themselves as dedicated and sympathetic, conducting patient questioning and offering help with drug treatment, and their targets acquiesce in the show's depiction of their own worst moments. The third seed of modern true crime is something we want to explore in a little more depth, because it's the one with the greatest claim to journalistic integrity and ethical storytelling. So we called up Brian McGinn, co-director, along with Rod Blackhurst, of the Netflix documentary about my case. We want to ask you about your favorite topic, true crime. So sorry. Oh, God. We've been, um... oh my God. <laughs> We've been working for two years on this podcast miniseries about the history and ethics of true crime. Wow. And we couldn't quite figure out how to tell the story. And so what we ended up doing was zooming way out and deciding that we needed to provide a lot more context about what true crime is, where it came from, what the models are. A part of what we want to talk to you about is the social commentary activist sort of thread, which we see as having its first big moment with Errol Morris. Yeah. 
And we know you were yeah. influenced by him. So we, so we, yeah. well, we wanted to ask that. you first was tell us about Thin Blue Line and Errol Morris. I fell in love with Errol Morris's work in college. For me, Errol's work, I would consider more of a broader collection of films than just Thin Blue Line. For me, that in, in fact, Thin Blue Line was not the film that inspired me the most of Errol's work. I was actually more of a fast, cheap, and out of control guy. All of the really strange character studies that he is so good at making. That focus on character in Errol Morris's work is actually one of the things that sets Thin Blue Line apart from other true crime at the time. If you haven't seen the 1988 film, you should. It's about the trial and conviction of Randall Dale Adams for the murder of a Texas police officer. And Randall Adams says to me, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. He kept talking about the kid, the kid, the kid, the kid, the kid. The kid is the guy who did it. Did I believe him? No. But I started slowly at first and then obsessively working on this case. That clip is from a TV documentary about the making of Thin Blue Line. Morris's film was groundbreaking in multiple ways, including a cinematic noir aesthetic, a haunting score by Philip Glass, and the intimacy of the direct-to-camera interview style. And as Brian McGinn notes, it's also a character study, more than a story about bad guys and good guys, criminals and victims. Without that morality play lens of judgment, the people Morris interviewed opened up, which led to some shocking revelations. I think if there was a part of Thin Blue Line that I found really revelatory, it was the eyewitness who maybe two-thirds of the way through the movie reveals that, oh, she hadn't seen it. She'd just been told that this was the guy. (laughs) And the way that she reveals it so matter-of-factly. I interviewed the three eyewitnesses who claimed to see Randall Adams driving the car when the policeman was shot. One witness said she failed to pick the defendant out in a police lineup. How did she know she had failed to identify Randall Adams? She says, I know because the policeman sitting next to me told me I picked out the wrong man and then pointed out the right man so I wouldn't make that mistake again. I think what interested me in that moment is this idea of how we construct airtight narratives around what's happened and how people kind of come to believe things, that for me is really fascinating. And I think is much more of an interest in human psychology than it is the crime itself, shall we say. That perspective informed McGinn's own work in the true crime genre when he co-directed the Netflix film about Amanda's wrongful conviction. Those kind of revelations were the things that get me so excited about Errol's work and that I think we tried to find people who would have similarly revealing things to say in our film, often more revealing about their own character or how they saw the world than necessarily, oh, it's a big twist or turn in terms of who done it. Right. I don't think that was ever, I shouldn't say that's not of interest because part of making the film about your case, Amanda, was really going deep into the case files and talking to a bunch of people. But from 
my personal interest as a filmmaker, I'm much more interested in the character dynamics and how does someone say something like that with a straight face to Errol Morris, not understanding the ramifications of what they're saying. I find that really interesting. Thin Blue Line also set the bar for the kind of modern true crime that attempts to reveal the truth and deliver long-delayed justice. In the film, Errol Morris finds the kid who was the star prosecution witness, David Harris. He's now an adult, and he's just been paroled from a seven-year stint in San Quentin. So I say to David Harris, I said, you know, I'm really glad I had an opportunity to meet you because I can see you're not the kind of person who would have committed that murder. And he gives me this very, very, very weird, penetrating look. I left, and he told me three times, be very, very careful going home. Morris spent two years trying to get David Harris on film. And the day he finally agreed to sit for an interview, he didn't show. Turns out, he was actually off killing a man, a crime which sent him to death row. It was there, in prison, where Morris was finally able to interview him. But midway through that crucial interview, where he hopes to deliver the goods, his camera breaks. He returns the next day with an audio tape recorder, and he asks David Harris one crucial question. Is Randall Dale Adams innocent? Well, what do you think about whether or not he's innocent? I'm sure he is. How can you be sure? That shocking moment was crucial in securing the exoneration and freedom of Randall Dale Adams after 12 years of wrongful incarceration. It's the dream outcome for any true crime operating in this vein. We recently saw this kind of success with Rabia Chaudhry's Undisclosed podcast, which came out in the wake of Serial, and which, unlike Serial, was explicitly attempting to make the case for Adnan Syed's innocence. Like Thin Blue Line, it ended up being important in delivering justice, helping to secure Adnan's release from prison last fall. It's hard to understate the impact Thin Blue Line had on the culture of true crime, for better and possibly for worse. I think that what that movie did for true crime, I would almost say that it generated this idea that you could create a cinematic layer to a crime story that I think has now gathered such momentum that they've forgotten the core reason for why Errol Morris was doing all these reenactments. Thin Blue Line was incredibly controversial when it debuted. The documentaries that had come before it were dry PBS fare, while Morris's film was stylized, made use of slow motion, had rich, saturated colors, and most controversial of all, it used reenactments to present contradictory versions of events, showing inconsistencies, provoking debate about the reliability of documentary as an art form. He was representing the different stories and points of view of the characters. He wasn't saying, I'm reenacting these things because I don't have any archival material to show, and so I'm going to shoot some bullshit. Right. <laughs> with actors to cover it. He was saying, hey, here's a couple of key pieces of evidence. How did this evidence turn out the way that it was actually found by the police? 
how do the stories of the police officers and the eyewitnesses and all this stuff, how do they line up with that evidence? And so it was more of an exploration of how do you get to the truth rather than a titillating aesthetic experiment. However, I think what's kind of happened over the years, like not everyone's a genius like Errol Morris. One of the problems in making a true crime documentary, and I hate that term generally as well, but we'll use it, is that most of the time there's no material to show. So you're making something in a visual medium. What are you going to look at? Right. And so right. reenactments have now become the way that you just find a visual way of communicating and illustrating a moment for an audience rather than being utilized to actually make a point or to illuminate something that someone's saying to help the audience understand, oh, wait, maybe there's more to this than meets the eye. And so I think that that movie was obviously hugely influential for another a number of reasons, but Aesthetically, I think it's kind of been warped and, you know, that the style of reenactment has become so ubiquitous, but it's been done in a way that's almost intellectually dishonest and missing the whole purpose of why he did it to begin with. Barry Sheck, one of the founders of the Innocence Project, defended Morris's use of reenactments against charges that he had brought fiction into his documentary, noting that they are similar to courtroom visualizations, depictions of conflicting accounts that the prosecution and defense are asking the jurors to choose between. As for Morris himself, he had this to say. There's this false idea that style equals truth. If you adopt a certain style and out pops truth, it's a stupid idea. Truth isn't guaranteed by style. Uh, truth, to the extent that we can ever grab a hold of it, is the product of a lot of hard work and investigation. If you asked me to define true crime, I would almost think of it as the 48 hours, unsolved murders kind of shows. And then I think there are shows that are not about trying to figure out who did it or regurgitating the story and then asking at the end, but who did it? Yeah. That are searching or exploring themes that are different than just whether the person did it or not. And I almost think that maybe there should be a separate genre for things that are exploring bigger picture issues in our world. So true crime plus. Through the lens. <laughs> through the, oh God, true crime plus. They feel like they're two different things. What was Ryan White's Netflix series about abuse in the Baltimore school? The Keepers. That was Ryan's Netflix series. You know, the poster says, who killed Sister Kathy? Right. Hmm. But the show is really an exploration of grief and, right. and pain and secrets and all of these different thematics than just an unsolved crime. And it's really more about covering up a story and how and why that happens. That's not just about who killed Sister Kathy, you know? I think what we've been exploring is how we don't limit true crime as a genre to just the ones that ask the question, who done it? It's just any kind of content that is telling a story around a crime and exploring the various reasons why certain 
kinds of content around this kind of sensitive material gets made and for whom and by whom. These different categories that we're trying to put together, there's the thin blue lines, and then there's the cops, and then there's the America's Most Wanted, and they're all creating content around crime, but in very, very different ways by very different people for very different reasons. Getting at the truth in true crime is a tricky proposition for all storytelling necessarily distorts reality in some way, simply by the point of view the story is told from, and the inevitable biases and agendas, explicit or implicit, of the storytellers. And even when you are, with noble intentions, honestly attempting to get at the truth, there's no guarantee that the true crime content you make will have a positive impact on society or on the people at the center of the crime you are exploring. Those questions have been relevant since the dawn of this genre in the 1500s. And it's our hope that, with that history in mind, we might be better able to make sense of true crime today and how all the players fit into this ecosystem. And of all the players, we need to start with those who have the most at stake in any true crime story, the victims. That's next time in part two of Blood Money. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And please, consider leaving a true crime relic for future historians by giving Labyrinths a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Blood Money, a Labyrinths miniseries, is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written, edited, and produced by us and Sophia Gates, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. In the Labyrinth's podcast system, the listener is serenaded by two separate but equally important hosts, Amanda Knox, who brings authenticity and empathy, and Christopher Robinson, who brings intellectual curiosity. These are their stories. What do you think, Knox? Looks like a podcast junkie shot up with one too many ads. Should have become a patron from the looks of it. Who wouldn't prefer ad-free episodes and signed books and live video hangouts over overdosing on ads in an alleyway? Don't patronize me, Knox. Leave that to the listener. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.